Well, good morning, Redemption Church. So good to be with you again on Sunday outside. It's looking a little nicer than anticipated today, but hopefully we're taking some time to focus on Jesus. Now, before I get underway, some brief reminders. First of all, I hope all of you, or at least many of you, are trying to figure out a way to make it to our church family camp this summer. It's going to be toward the end of June. I'm going to camp. I hope you're going to camp, and it's going to be super low-key. So normally we do our men's base camp, just for all the obvious reasons, weren't able to do that this this year, so we thought we would open it up in a different sort of way, and people could just hang out, low-key, good time, plenty of activities to do, but really, it's also just another way for us to start to kind of re-coalesce together as a church, and that, to me, is one of the most kind of important things that we're going to do this summer as we're meeting down here at the Hub, out here on the lot, getting kids' ministry back together and everything else. It's really an opportunity to just reconnect and re-coalesce in such a way that, you know, it's just been a weird time, right, all the way around. Like, everything teaches. And this year certainly is taught in many different ways. But now we're going into a new season, and that's going to teach in a different way altogether. So lots of things to do this summer where we can kind of come together and reconnect as a church. The other thing I want to remind you of is we do have an app, and in the app there are notes and all sorts of other things. We have kids' ministry stuff online still good stuff all the way around. And so we want to make sure that you are encouraged in Christ and that uh, we just have resources there so that you can continue to grow, adapt, learn, and be more like Jesus. Because that's what our whole objective is as a church. We believe that life is better with Jesus. And much of what that means is learning about Jesus, what Jesus has for our life and how we can advance his kingdom. And so that's even why we're going through the gospel of Luke. So this morning, we're going to go into chapter 13, so you can start to tap or turn or whatever you want to get to chapter 13, but I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right into kind of this second of a three-part little kind of micro-series here in the Gospel of Luke that I think is very important for us as we seek to follow Jesus. So right now, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we will get to business. Jesus, I thank you that you are an awesome teacher and, and not just that you modeled it, but then you painted pictures for us in illustrative ways that we can learn from. You had interactions with people, both people that loved what you were saying and people that did not love what you were saying. And all of that teaches us so that we might be more like you, we might advance your kingdom in ways that are honoring to you, and that we might seek out the things that you want us to do. And so my prayer, Jesus, above all else, is that our identity as a people would be in you, that our identity be, would be what you care about, what you were pressing into the lives of people, and that we would embody that, that we would put those things first above all other things. And so we ask not only for teaching this morning, but a sense of inspiration, even a sense of self-reflection, so that uh, we can get more and more us out of the way, so that you and more and more can really show us the way. So we look to you to do that. We thank you, Jesus, and we love you in your good name. Amen. Okay, so you are in Luke chapter 13, and this is one of those sections in Luke where more and more what we're seeing through the story is that Jesus is tightening the screws down, not only on the nation of Israel, but on religion as the ones that are really the architects of the spiritual journey of the people of Israel. In fact, if anything, throughout the Gospel of Luke, you see this compressing tension 
where Jesus is more and more confronting the religious standard, kind of confronting in that this heart that is, that is blocked when it comes to the things of God. And this has been a warning for a long time that God's been bringing to Israel. He's like, you guys don't get it. You're being hard-hearted. You're being callous. You don't care about justice, mercy, and the love of God. And there's got to be a change. And you haven't listened to the prophets, so now I'm sending my son. And now Jesus is on the scene, and he's talking about that. And when we get to chapter 13, Luke takes time to create this very interesting pattern to highlight this need of change. And so we learned about this last week. We call this a chiasmus structure. And so with this, Jesus says in verses one through five of chapter 13, religion must repent. And then in this, he says it needs to repent of fruitless religion and forsaken religion. So it's like the bookends of the chapter. Both of those things become super critical. And that's what we saw last week. But today he's going to talk about this need for religion to repent of loveless religion and of lost religion. And so this is working toward a center. It's a crossover, runs in and then runs out, highlighting this need to repent and that repentance is to look a certain way. So with that, we're starting off in chapter 13, verse 10, and we see this loveless problem on the part of religion. It says, one Sabbath day, As Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. And so again, bent double is this idea of not just like this, but like this, like she's double bent. She's super hunkered over. And so Jesus is teaching in a synagogue when he sees this happen. Now, here's what's interesting. There are three occurrences in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is in a synagogue, right? So the local church of the religious establishment. And every time Jesus finds himself in that environment, it goes poorly. It like hits the five stars in a Thai spicy restaurant, right? Like every time religious leadership is like, why is he doing this? Why is he saying this? How dare he? The first time was in his own hometown. And by the end of that event, they wanted to kill him, right? The second and third time, Jesus does a dastardly deed. He's nice to somebody and heals them. And this just torques religion. We're going to see that all unfold here this morning. Now, here's what you want to understand as we go into this story, right? Um, it, it, it seems at first that it's going to be pretty easy to, to figure out that, oh, this is a woman. She's in need. What a great thing. But here's how we have to understand their culture. Everything when it comes to this woman was stacked against her as it pertained to religion. Right? In other words, the Jewish religion, you would think would have a very high view of women based on what they see in the Old Testament. But by this time, the view was probably not as high, especially for this individual. First of all, women were not permitted to come inside a synagogue to listen to biblical teaching. So when Jesus sees this woman, it's more realistically that he stepped out of the door of the synagogue and he sees her pensively at some short distance. Now, the reason she's probably pensive is the fact that she is double bent over by a demonic presence of some kind in some way. And for that culture, they'd be like, oh, she's a little bit untouchable, right? She's sort of the kind of person in society that we would rather she would hide socially than be out here in the open. And so she's got that problem. And then add to the fact that most rabbis in this time period would not interact with a woman even, right? They wouldn't give her the time of day. They wouldn't want to say, how can we come alongside? How can we help? How can we teach, right? So everything about this woman is problematic for religion. Why is she at the synagogue? Why is she here with a demon? She's unclean. Why would she want to talk to a rabbi? But Jesus 
is a different kind of rabbi. And as we've been learning in chapter 13, he's bringing in a different kind of kingdom. And Jesus is all about showing dignity where there is no dignity, value where value has been lost, care where most people are careless. And so with this, he sees the woman and it says he called her over and he said. Now, typically when you and I are reading through our Bibles, we just read over the top of that. That's just like some extra little detail that we don't realize has any real pertinence. But slow down for a minute and think about this. Here's this woman that religion has overlooked, has avoided, and has ignored, right? Because that's just kind of the MO. You're either dirty, you're unclean, you're unwanted, you're socially untouchable or whatever. And now here's this rabbi, and it says, this woman is seen and sought and spoken to. See, this is very different. I don't know if she's heard about Jesus and she hears he's teaching at the temple and maybe she'll come across some different thing than she's experienced before. But this is a huge risk for this woman, right? Because most of the time, religion isn't there to help her. Religion is just there to condemn her or to avoid her or to ignore her. But now Jesus gives her attention and the love of God is displayed. And as we'll see in a minute, it's displayed on the footsteps of a loveless local church. That's what a synagogue is. It's a local church. And it's a loveless local church based on what we're going to see. Now, Jesus shows love in the way that love should be shown. He shows love in action. He doesn't just say, hey, lady, I love you. I'm going to go get lunch now. No, he does something. Verse 12, dear woman, he says, you are healed of your sickness. Then he touched her and instantly she could stand straight. Now, real quick here, I want you to look and notice the order of what is being said here. It, it, it doesn't necessarily say that what he does is he touches her, and then from that, she's healed. No, what it actually is saying is Jesus, by mere words, speaks it. He says, you're healed, you're complete, you're fixed, you're new. And then after he gives this word of healing, then he touches her. So both of these are important things. They have two different variants of healing. One is the fact that she is somehow, again, shackled by a satanic presence. And by his mere word, this demon goes like so often is the case. But then after that, Jesus touches her, which is a different kind of healing in that it restores her sense of just personhood, social value. Like when Jesus would touch a person, it's a signal to the culture that they're acceptable that they are touchable. They're clean in essence, right? They, they can be brought into the fold. They are no longer an outcast. That's what the touch does. And so while this woman is typically ignored by the men of God, it is the son of God who gives her attention and completeness. And so from that, what's her response? Well, you can imagine the response. It says, how she praised God. Here's something that's interesting to note throughout the gospel of Luke. Every occurrence of somebody praising God is somebody that you shouldn't assume praises God. In other words, it's the outcasts, the unlovelies, the unwanted, the others, the people outside of the boundary markers, but the ones who come in contact with grace and love and power and forgiveness and mercy. Those are the ones that say, we know how awesome this person is, what he's given to us that we didn't deserve, and they burst out in praise. You know the ones who never praise? The religious ones, the ones that say, we believe the Bible, we trust the Old Testament God, they don't praise. 
it's the outsiders who praise, but the ones who think they're better than most, they've got it more together, they're more ethical or theological or whatever else, it's a different game. So the outsiders, they explode in celebration while the, quote, insiders, they explode in criticism and condemnation. In fact, no sooner does Jesus free this woman and the woman praises Jesus for what has happened and praises God for what God has done in the person of Jesus that we see religious blowback. Verse 14 says, but the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on, of all the days to be healed, it's not to be on the Sabbath. What is he doing? What is he thinking? Why is he doing it this way? Now, here's what I think is nuts, all right? Just personal opinion for just a second. This homie has just watched a miracle, right? So here's this woman, doubled down, demon-possessed, whatever else. She is freed. She's literally unbound and goes from this double-hunkered position to standing up, praising God, and this dude is more freaked out about what day of the week it happened on than somebody was freed from an ailment or from Satan. When you're a religious person and you are going just like, ah, poo-pooing, an amazing, miraculous event, of both mercy and power, it shows how hard your heart is, how locked into your system you are. You're so deep in the weeds of religion and law, you forget why God gave religion and law, which is to restore people. You're caring more about loveless law than you are about the exercise of true love. That's where this guy is at. And he's looking at the crowd and he's ranting about it. How dare Jesus be nice and supernatural? That's what's happening. That's how blinded you can become. But this guy has forgotten something that Jesus deals with elsewhere in the Gospels. See, this guy, he's great at the Old Testament, right? If you're running a synagogue, you're a local church pastor, you know your Bible. You're going to know the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And what you see in Genesis is on day six, God makes the man and the woman and he endows them with his image and likeness. And then on day seven, God rested. And the pattern is God made man and woman, and then God made the Sabbath. And God made the Sabbath to bless the man and the woman. God did not say on day six, I make the Sabbath. And then on day seven, I make man and women to serve the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus says, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm just telling you, this day was meant to give rest to people. This day was not created so people could serve the day. And so Jesus is always disrupting what religion holds dear, right? And he's just doing it again here. People matter to God more than your rules over people matter to God. And to me, what's amazing is think about this woman. It says she has been crippled for 18 years. For a minute, just imagine that she has gone through over 900 Sabbaths, never with rest, right? Week after week, month after month, year after year, enslaved. And now finally, for the first time in a long time, she's finally able to rest on the Sabbath. But now this other guy is worked up on the Sabbath and cannot rest. Instead, he's ranting to the crowd a bit again about how awful Jesus is for doing such a kind and good thing. So what does Jesus say to the outrage machine? He says, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day 
Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and then lead it out for water? What he's saying is when it suits your agenda, your pocketbook, your priority, your self-preservation, you have no problem breaking the rules at all, right? But if it's just for some woman who's crippled and Satan-possessed, ah, whatever, your donkeys are more important to you than a daughter of Abraham. Is that what you're saying? Like, Jesus is bringing some serious confrontation. And then he says this, this dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? See, this religious leader should be thrilled that a daughter of Abraham has been released from bondage. And not just the bondage of Egypt or Babylon or Rome. No, she's been released from the slaver of all slavers, right? Satan himself. And Jesus does this not simply because it's nice to do or kind to do. Notice he says there, it was right. It was right. Like Jesus is looking at the scene on the Sabbath and it would have been sinful to do nothing. It would have been negligent to do nothing. It would have looked in the eyes and face of God and said, I don't have time for love. I'm busy with law right now. Like Jesus says, this is the right thing to do, even on a day that is precious, like the Sabbath, right? Because she's one of God's kids, but she's enslaved. And God sent Jesus into the world to do what? To free those enslaved. And Jesus has already said in the gospel of Luke that he's binding the strong man in the strong man's house and he's setting the captives free. So Jesus is just fulfilling his mission. He's bringing true rest where even the Sabbath cannot bring rest. In fact, you see this in Matthew chapter 11 to chapter 12. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And immediately after that, he gets busted for breaking the Sabbath. But his point is, I'm the truer, better Sabbath. I'm the rest you need more than the rest of a particular day. And so he just, and again, just kind of lays down the line, tightens the screws and shows the difference between what he is doing and what religion is trying to accomplish. So how did it go? Verse 17, this, this shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things that he did. You remember a few weeks back, we learned that Jesus says, you know what, I've come into the world in such a way that it lights a fire and it brings division. He's not trying to be divisive. It's just the fact that the good news of Jesus, the gospel of grace is going to be divisive, especially with people who love merit systems, law systems, and rule systems. Grace is crazy nuts to those who love all that other stuff, right? And so he's just dividing and you see the divide here, the fire that burns is separating the chaff from the real stuff. And at the core of this, right? The separation is the difference between religion's sense of holiness and Jesus's sense of holiness, right? They both claim holiness. They both want what's holy, but their definitions, as we will eventually see, are very different. And so in this, it shames the system, but it excites the people. And so the line just keeps getting deeper and darker between Jesus and religion when it comes to what's most valuable. But I'll be honest with you, this raises a problem or a question, which is if Jesus is confronting religion and religion then doesn't have the way, if the Jewish system in Israel has lost the path to salvation, then the question is, well, then who's right? 
how can you be saved? Is there any certainty on the way forward, right? Is there any hope for anyone? And the answer to that, is there any hope for anyone is, well, yes, there is. And no, in a certain sort of way. And I know that sounds a little freaky at first. But what Jesus is going to then go into in our kind of this structure that we have where it jumps from this part of the, the passage to this part of the passage, what he's going to get into in all of that is, is the idea that there is a solution, but it has some tension involved. And so in our chiasmus, we jump to verse 22, and it says, Jesus went to the towns and villages, teaching as he went, always pressing toward Jerusalem, the cross and the resurrection is the goal. But on this journey, someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? So again, we think about what's going on. If religion is fruitless and forsaken and loveless, so much so that it requires a massive rethink. Remember that? Repent means to think different. Rethink how you've prioritized things. If that's the case, Jesus, is there any hope for the average Joe and Jane Jew? Is there any hope that they can be saved at all? And Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, doesn't answer the question outright, but rather what he does is he uses this opportunity as kind of this window to remind people, hey, what you should be focused on most of all is following me. That's going to be the key. And so he uses this as that opportunity. So he replies and he says this, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom. For many will try to enter, but will fail. Now, when I read that, every light on my dashboard is flashing, right? Because you can't help but read that and say, wait a minute, Jesus, I'm a little confused because isn't it saved by grace, not by works? But now this sounds like serious works. Is Jesus a heretic now saying, all right, here's the deal. To be saved, work really, really hard. You better work twice as hard as the average guy or you're going to hell. Like, is that what he's getting at? Well, not exactly, but he does create a healthy tension in this by making the statement the way that he does. So let's break it out a little bit. First of all, work hard. In the Greek, this is where we get the word agonize. So he is saying something that takes some effort. And in this, what it's really communicating, because it's used of soldiers or it's used of athletes, things of that nature. What he's saying is pour all of your passion, all of your focus, all of your drive, all of your grit into the pursuit of this thing. Because he's saying, if you want to claim my way, and if you want to say you are my follower, then it means you have to have your priorities in order. And we've learned this through the gospel of Luke. If we're saying he's first, what we're saying is then it's kingdom first. I will seek the kingdom's righteousness over my own comfort. If it's his way over my way, it means I'm going to do the great command. I'm going to love God and I'm going to love my neighbor with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to deny myself, take up that cross daily and follow him. That's the core of what he's trying to drive at here. That is a narrow way. That's a tough thing. You're going to agonize in the process of seeking to do that kind of stuff with your life. Now, is it easy? No way. But it is the way. It's narrow. And as we saw earlier in the Gospel of Luke, it's rewarded. He pulls out a seat, says, sit down. I'm going to serve you because you serve me so well, right? That's what he longs to do. But again, there's nothing easy about it. And many, I think, are going to be in heaven, as we're going to see in a minute. So this idea of it's very few is going to be converted into everybody from north, south, east, and west. Don't lose heart on that. 
But here's what's true. Though, many will be in heaven. Uh, many will have lost out or just kind of bypassed this idea of putting in all the passion, the drive, the want, the self-restraint, the, the reckless abandon, the big picturedness, if you will, of doing it this way, right? Leaving it all on the field for Jesus will be like, oh, that's, that's too lofty of a call. But that's the call that he's calling us to. Sure, we want the blessing. We want the encouragement. We want the emotional uplifting. I get it. But we can't really have that if it's at the cost of really doing kingdom things. Because to do kingdom things in kingdom ways with a kingdom heart, it does cost. It is a challenge. It's going to be tough. Now, next week, we'll look at that narrow door living, right? We'll ping down to that center point. That's the center of the chapter. That is that thing we repent to, if you will. But for this week, what I want us to kind of focus on is the fact that um, for the Jewish people that are hearing this, Jesus's words are shocking, right? What he's beginning to outline is going to freak them out. And here's why. The average Jewish person thought, hey, we're children of Abraham. We're automatically in because we're connected to the family line, like if we're kids of Abraham, we're the elect nation. The elect nation is automatically in because we are sons of Abraham, right? And yet what we just saw in the previous section is that it was a daughter of Abraham who was humble and set free in love. While there was a son of Abraham who was proud and he's still in bondage to his love of law over love of law. And so Jesus is beginning to disrupt the mindset of Israel because what he's saying is not everybody who's Israel is Israel, which is what Paul says in Romans chapter 9 through 11. Just because you got the right title doesn't mean you have the right relationship. And so Jesus is driving further into that. If you have the right relationship with God, then you want the kingdom of God. You want to live out the heart of God, which is in essence the gospel of God. And so Jesus is saying God seeks not a name, but humility contrition, dependence, and surrender. And so he says this in verse 25. When the master of the house has locked the door, it'll be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. But then they will say, well, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. And he will reply, I tell you, I do not know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all who do evil. He's calling religion evil here. He says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for you who see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you will be thrown out. And people will come from all over the world, from the east, the west, the north, and the south to take their place in the kingdom of God of God. And then he capstones it with this. It's a defining mark of the kingdom heart versus a religious heart. He says, note this, some who seem least important now will be the greatest then. And some who are the greatest now will be the least important then. Now there's a ton there, frankly, too much for me to cover with the time that I have, but I want to highlight just a couple of things that I think are critical, right? There's, first of all, this whole chapter is meant to be contrasts, right? So we've seen the contrast. The daughter of Abraham versus the son of Abraham. The woman outside the local church in Israel versus the guy running the local church in Israel, right? She's the least in the community. He's the greatest in the community. And Jesus says, but let me blow your mind. In the kingdom that I'm starting, she's the one running the show. And that dude is the least of all. 
So Jesus is letting us know that the way the kingdom works is very opposite of the way the world works. Add to it the fact that the keeper of the door of the kingdom should have been the guy running the church. And Jesus talks about that early in the Gospel of Luke. He says, you guys are supposed to open the door for people to be saved. Instead, you're slapping a lock on it and you keep people from coming in. And so it's a warning to religion again. The door should be open for all, but you're closing it to all in your pride. And while religion thinks it has the inside track, Jesus says, ultimately, if you continue down the road of religion, you'll be outside of the blessing. You will be outside looking in, wishing you were in there, but you aren't because you care more about the rules than you care about the essence and the heart of the rules, which is to display love. The whole purpose of a book like Leviticus is to learn how to love your neighbor, not learn how to love the rules at the cost of your neighbor. But that was the failure, right? And so what Jesus is ultimately saying is, is the narrow way tough? It is very hard for the religious mind. It's very tough for the person that wants to say, I'm better than most. I keep the rules. They don't keep the rules. They need to keep the rules to get in. Jesus says, man, that's a, that's a tough way to do it, right? But paradoxically, he says, there will be many that enter from the north, the south, the east, and the west, right? Say, so well, well, how? If religion seems to be pinched out, how are people saved, right? How does that happen? Well, again, we see it continually through the Gospel of Luke. It's people that throw themselves on the mercy and grace of God. It's people who see their brokenness and say, God, only you can rescue. Only you can make a difference. Only you can change things. And that's why people from all over gather together. In fact, in uh, Revelation chapter 7, we see the end of the story where people from every nation, tribe, tongue, language, a multitude too large to count is celebrating alongside the daughter of Abraham, praising God and his Christ for what God has done in the grace of his gospel. It will always come down to the same thing. It is an upside down kingdom that is backwards from the ways of the world. We live in a world that says merit gets you ahead. Jesus starts a kingdom that says, no, it's only my merit that gets anybody in. It will never be religious pride that gets us closer to God. It only draws us away from God. But if we're like, you know what? There before the grace of God go I, it's all your work it's all your mercy. It's all your compassion, Jesus. It's all your kindness. And I just want to be more like you. That's, that's the sweet spot. That's the place where multitudes are added. Not because we're so smart, but because he is so good. Not because we're so good, but because he is so kind. Not because we've got it figured out, but rather because we are dependent on grace. When we live that way and that kind of humility... That is the place where we act as missionaries and we see others added to that number because they are reliant on Christ for his kingdom. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I see as you continue to move toward the middle of this chapter, next week we'll certainly see the center of what it means to embrace narrow door living. And we know that it is not easy, but we also know in that that we ask and seek and knock for you to do a thing in us that gets rid of our pride, that gets rid of our independence, that gets rid of our me firstism and embraces that idea that says, you know what, the greatest is the least, right? Whoever thinks there's something in this life will be nothing in the next one. Whoever realizes 
before the grace of God go, I, there, there, is, there is nothing but his grace to sustain me. When we realize that, we may be least in this life, but we're greatest in your sight. And so help us to live inverted. Help us to live backwards. Help us to live counterintuitively to the way we want to live in this world where it is way more about us getting ahead and us working hard and us earning our, 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 our keep. And instead, let us embrace the fact that it's you doing all things for us. And from that, we should do all things for you. Jesus, we thank you and we love you and your kind of good name. Amen.